Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of National Journal, sitting in for Bill, who is on vacation. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday, September 23rd. Well, we had another week that contained about a month's worth of news. Donald Trump's legal peril somehow gets even worse. Biden takes Putin to the woodshed of the United Nations. The Fed hikes rates again amid more signs of a wobbly economy. Congress takes some action on the Electoral Count Act and the climate while it tries to keep the government's lights on. And the race for control of Congress just seems to get tighter all the time. Here to help us sort it all out, Sarah Wire, Justice Department and National Security Reporter at the Los Angeles Times. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. And we also have not one but two National Journal alums. Leah Escarnum, who is now Senior Editor at Grid News. Hello, Leah. Good morning, Jeff. And Alex Rorty, White House Correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. Hello, Alex. Jeff, hello. Thank you for having me on. Sure thing. Okay, we don't want to bury the lead. We'll start big right out of the gate. Sarah, the special master appointed by the court in the Trump documents case, said he needed to put up or shut up when it came to his claims that he declassified all of the material. And then the next day, a federal appeals court essentially said that Trump has no possessory interest in these documents, that they belong to the American people. But then Trump appears on Sean Hannity's show and said something rather extraordinary. Let's listen to it. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. Sarah, you are an expert in federal law and the courts. Can a president, in fact, declassify documents via telekinesis? No. Okay, that's settled. I, I feel like that uh, Geico commercial. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Um, so give us a sense of these two uh, des- decisions, the spe- well, the special master's opinion, coupled with uh, the, the appeals court's opinion a day later, taken together, uh, what does this mean for the, the future of this case and, and where the Trump team has to go from here? At this point, the classified documents are no longer a part of the special master review. Now, the former president can appeal the decision of the appeals court, but the only place he can appeal to is directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the, you know, the opinion written by the appeals court was frankly scathing. They really argued that there should be no realistic interest that the former president can have in seeing what's inside these documents anymore, that he's no longer president and that these documents belong to the American people. Um, so the the special master's review will go forward. He set a really aggressive timeline to review the remaining about 11,000 documents. But this isn't what uh, Trump and his team wanted to see. 
And then while we're on the topic, uh, New York's Attorney General Letitia James dropped a lawsuit against Trump, his company, and his kids this week, saying that they run a fraudulent enterprise and seeking to recover about $250 million and basically bar them from doing business in New York for five years. This is on top of the January 6th investigation, the Georgia investigation, and additional investigations by the city and state of New York. Um, where does this rank in terms of where he has the most legal exposure right now? We're going to see in the coming weeks um, how much you know evidence she has, and you know exactly what what she can peg him with. I mean, the the allegations are and the charges are very serious that he. Um, you know, overestimated the value of his company in order to get loans. That's fraud. Um, and it's not just him being accused, but it's his company and his family. Um, you know, considering the other litigation or potential charges that he's facing, this is just kind of one more big thing on the heap, but it's completely different than anything else that's, uh, he's facing right now. Because the burden of proof here is also lower. And as I understand it, uh, all those times he took the Fifth Amendment and the depositions can now be used against him because it's a civil case. Yeah, this isn't a criminal case. This is a civil. And so, uh, you know, he can't use some of the tactics that he is using in the other cases, pleading the Fifth, um, some of the delay tactics. And he's also seeing this in the special master case where he has to prove that the documents belong to him or that he has, you know, a executive privilege over them. It's not up to the Department of Justice to prove that he doesn't have possession of them. Right. Now, on his uh, legal expenses, we've seen some reporting that he's using some of his PAC money for legal expenses. Um, could he potentially do that in the New York case too? And if he does announce for president, does that place further restrictions on his ability to use that money for uh his PAC money for his lawyers? I'm not actually sure if he can use the PAC money for a state case, um, especially when uh, it deals with uh, his personal finances. It has nothing to do with his um, you know, political dealings. I'm not actually sure the answer to that. Alex, while all this was going down, uh, Biden was in Trump's old stopping ground in New York uh, addressing the UN General Assembly. And he was, as my colleague George Condon wrote, much more pointed in calling out an adversary than any U.S. president in recent memory. Um, let's listen to a little bit of a clip on what he had to say about Putin. Just today, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Now, Russia's calling, calling up more soldiers to join the fight, and the Kremlin is organizing a sham referenda to try to annex parts of Ukraine an extremely <clears throat> significant violation of the UN Charter. Uh, Alex, in, in calling him out so directly, uh, is Biden playing with fire a little bit here? A lot of observers say that a cornered Putin is even more dangerous. Um, and, and as the president said, he's, Putin is in the process of conscripting hundreds of thousands of more Russian troops into the army. Well, it, 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 it might be, um, but it, it hasn't been thus far. And I think if you look at this from President Biden's perspective, you know, he has been forceful about this, um, not since day one, really, even before day, day one of, of the invasion um, this year. And they clearly see this as a hallmark of his presidency thus far. 
Um, it will be a hallmark of his presidency uh, when it's done, whether that's in 2025 or, or 2029 um, remains to be seen. Um, but they clearly see not only is this a hallmark of Biden's presidency, but it's been a successful one um, on the ground in Europe, clearly. Right. Um, and so I think that they have been clear. It, it's not as if they're not worried uh, that Vladimir Putin might escalate matters um, and, and, God forbid, use nuclear weapons. Um, but I don't think that they have never let that be an excuse not to try to organize sanctions to push back or to deliver a speech uh, like the one he did um, this week at the United Nations uh, when he said, he, you know, Russia shamelessly violated U.N. principles. Um, so I think, you know, the the impression that the president has left uh, with everyone is that nothing is going to change, um, even as Putin becomes more and more cornered, uh, apparently. Uh, the president is going to continue uh, putting the uh, the pedal to the to the metal here in, in Europe. And uh, he not only said that on, on 60 Minutes, uh, warned them don't use nuclear weapons, but the Washington Post has some reporting this morning that uh, we've been using back channel communications for months now, uh, warning them of exactly the same thing, not to use nuclear weapons. Yeah, I, I would, you know, I would suspect in, in any sort of form of communication with the Russians that we have, that we are making it clear uh, that we don't want them to use nuclear weapons, that there would be severe consequences for using nuclear weapons. Um, so that 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 doesn't uh, that doesn't surprise me. Speaking of sixty minutes, Leah, uh, the administration got some lousy inflation news last week, and when Biden was on sixty minutes, he did not quite address it so well. Let's hear that clip. People are shocked by their grocery bills. What can you do better and faster? Well, first of all, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month is just uh, 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 just an inch, hardly at all. You're not arguing that 8.3 is good news. No, I'm not saying it is good news, but it was 8.2 or 8.2 before. I mean, it's not. You're, I, mean, I can make it sound like all of a sudden, my God, it went to 8.2%. It's, been, it's the highest inflation rate, Mr. President, in 40 years. I got that. But guess what we are? We're in a position where for the last several months it hasn't spiked. It has just barely, it's been basically even. Grown. Yeah. So <laughs> what he was inartfully, I think, trying to get at is that the last two months of inflation reports have been good news. Uh, the most recent one showed a, a very minimal increase uh, from the previous month and the month before that was was stagnant. So basically, we've had two months of good inflation news. That doesn't mean <laughs> that inflation is at a good point. Um, it's it it wasn't. Uh, it it kind of felt like Biden was dismissing the number when I I actually know exactly what he was trying to get across. Um, so it, in the end, we are way above where we need to be in inflation and. That's why we saw the Fed earlier this week uh, increase interest rates again um, for the uh, third third major uh, increase in a row uh, to get inflation in check. So there's if you're Biden and I think the kind of political message here for Democrats is that things have gotten better in a lot of ways in the last few months for Democrats, uh, partially because the economic news has stopped diving. It is slowly improving, even if it's not at a place that uh, is acceptable yet. Um, we've seen 
uh, Biden work with Senate Democrats to pass uh, major legislation. Uh, we've seen Trump take the stage in a way that uh, I think is probably benefiting Democrats right now. Um, so I, I, I think the the kind of concern there <laughs> is the political posturing of it. It's not really up to Biden to tell uh, the American people that inflation isn't that bad right now or that it's better when, uh, you know, especially in November, people don't vote for the most improved party. You know, like they vote for what they think is the better option. Yeah. Um, it's not exactly what the administration wants to be dealing with six weeks away from the election. The, there was a, a J.P. Morgan report that came out last week that got a lot of attention, which was that the economy is more likely bracing for a soft landing versus a recession. So good news. But everyone is still, again, now going to be paying even more on their adjustable mortgages and loans. Uh, so going into the fall, does this uh, threaten, from Democrats' perspective, to once again eclipse issues like uh, abortion, Trump? guns, what have you, and all the things that they that they want this election to be about. Well, I think that it looks like a lot of the most recent Fed hike, it's it's going to probably probably mostly affect people who are looking to buy homes or who have adjustable mortgages. Um, so it might not be something that is immediately felt in, you know, day-to-day -day pocketbook issues. Um, if you look at the actual indicators of the economy, um, it's much stronger than it was, say, in the 1982 midterms when um, inflation uh, was a, a big concern for Ronald Reagan and eventually turned into unemployment. The, the overall economic indicators like unemployment um, are relatively strong. So I think, again, even if uh, this isn't uh, where Biden would want to be in November of his first midterm, it is significantly better than it could have been, than it would have been five months ago or three months ago even. So uh, the trajectory for Democrats, and again, we still have about seven weeks until the election. Um, as a strategist told me yesterday, uh, you know, we saw what happened in the last seven weeks of the 2020 presidential campaign. Um but in general, the trajectory is at this moment, uh, things are getting better for Democrats. Not that Democrats are surging above Republicans, but they're in a less bad situation than they were a few months ago. Let's shift uh, from, the, from the White House to Congress for a moment. Um, Congress has been busy this week. Uh, for starters, Alex, the House passed electoral count reform yesterday. Uh, but their bill is a little bit different than the version in the Senate that has 10 Republicans to support it. Uh, who's got the upper hand here? Well, <laughs> Jeff, that's a, that's a good question, I think. Um, you know, usually in these matters, um, because the Senate needs Republican support, right? Um, and, and in the House, you can pass things uh, effectively with only Democratic members. The Senate usually gets its way. And I think Susan Collins has make clear that she thinks the Senate version um, is, is superior um, in some of the details. I mean, the, the basic premise of both pieces of legislation is, is the same, though, right? It is to try to um, eliminate some of the hijinks that happened um, after the 2020 election when President Trump and some of his allies uh, effectively tried to subvert um, our, our electoral process. 
um, you know, to try to clarify the role the, the vice president has in this process to try to uh, make it clear that electors and states uh, can't send their own batch of, of electors. Uh, it has to come from the, the governor, um, you know, uh, and, and so it really is, it looks like, believe it or not, I mean, an actual uh, rare moment of a bipartisan agreement on, on an important subject. Although for this Congress, um, you know, as, as we've discussed uh, on, on this show before, um, you know, there has been uh, a, a fair bit of legislative success and breakthrough, whether that's in healthcare for veterans um, or gun control legislation. This appears to be one more item uh, that we can chalk up. And I'm not sure anyone really expected that, um, you know, as, as recently as 12 months ago, uh, much less when, when this Congress got started. Um, so, you know, if, if they're able to pass this through and it looks like they're going to be able to come to some agreement here um, while this Congress uh, re- remains in session, um, you know, it's it's going to be a, another a fairly significant legislative achievement. There's always a twist. And this year it is permitting. Uh, Congress hopes to pass a continuing resolution through the end of the year. But Chuck Schumer struck a deal with Joe Manchin earlier this year to vote on easing the permitting process for energy and public works projects, along with uh, funding the government. Uh, The left is none too happy about it. Uh, Leah, what can you tell us about this this current morass uh, that Manchin is again in the middle of? Well, I mean, that seems to be the theme of the year, right? Doesn't it, though? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that mansion is in the middle of the, uh, the democratic process of, of actually trying to pass legislation in the Senate. Um, I mean, so mansion is obviously he has specific needs for his state, West Virginia, a state that Trump you know, consistently won by 30 plus points. One of his kind of key people to get in line this for for legislation was uh, his uh, senator, the other senator from West Virginia. Um, it seems like they are now on the same page. Uh, so, I mean, I think we're just where we've been for the last two years, which is it's kind of Joe Manchin's Senate and we're all living in it. Yeah, there was a there was a sweetener in the in the in the bill uh, specifically regarding a West Virginia pipeline that goes to uh, quote unquote East Virginia, and that Shelley Moore Capito, the, his his West Virginia colleague, seems much more likely to support it based on this. And this is something that Republicans have have longed for for a long time. Uh, this kind of permitting reform, so they just need to get on board with Democrats for a little bit. Lots more to talk about, namely the midterm elections, which we will get to after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour, sitting in for Bill, along with Sarah Weyer, Leah Eskaranam, and Alex Rorty. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line in our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans. And we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. 
go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour from National Journal, sitting in for Bill, along with Sarah Weyer from the LA Times, Leah Escarnum from Grid News, and Alex Rorty from McClatchy Newspapers. Alex, let's start with you and get into the midterms. Uh, the Senate picture is getting even murkier. Latest polling averages as of last night from 538. Wisconsin is even. Ohio is even. North Carolina is even. Nevada, Democrat plus one. Georgia, Democrat plus two. Florida, Republican plus four. Um, what's the story here? I should mention that New Hampshire and Arizona and Pennsylvania aren't even on the list. Um, Democrats are ahead comfortably in those states because of bad Republican candidates. In fact, speaking of bad Republican candidates, let's listen to one of those candidates give a particularly bad soundbite. So I'm preparing. I'm this country boy. You know, I'm not that smart. And he's that preacher. He's a smart man. Wear these nice suits. So he's going to show up and embarrass me at the debate October the 14th. And I'm just waiting. You know, I'll show up and I'm going to do my best. That was Herschel Walker. Um, managing expectations in quite a creative way uh, ahead of his debate with Raphael Warnock in Georgia. So my question, Alex, is, is this simply a case of the political fundamentals helping Republicans while a crop of lousy candidates hurts them and helps Democrats? Yeah, I mean, I think that's been the general dynamic uh, most of this cycle. Um, I, I will say, I mean, I think for a lot of people, even people who cover this pretty closely, no one's entirely sure what to make of the Senate map at the moment, other than it's it's very, very close. I think yeah. there are two things happening. One, as we have talked about on, on this podcast, you know, the macro political climate for Democrats has improved. It has improved more than I think a lot of Democrats, even optimistic Democrats, ever would have expected when the summer began. But because gas prices have dropped, because of the Dobbs ruling, because of some of the better economic news and perhaps Trump's reemergence, um, in a bigger way on the national stage, the sort of overall national political climate really has gotten better for Democrats. You see that reflected in the generic ballot, uh, which has gone from 
a slight Republican advantage a few months back to now a, a slight Democratic advantage. At the same time, however, you have the individual circumstances in each of these races. And, and in most of these cases, because Democrats are on defensive, they have incumbents running for reelection, right? And incumbents usually start out races looking stronger and then their lead slowly dwindles as, as the months go by. And so you have this situation where even if the macro political climate looks better, Raphael Warnock, the Democratic senator in Georgia, his lead might look smaller and smaller and smaller to the point now where a lot of polls do have Herschel Walker uh, ahead. The same thing with Catherine Cortez Masto. They now have, you know, their Republican opponents um, have, have, have emerged. They've had a chance to get their feet underneath them and start, most importantly, running ads. And that's a big factor here because Democrats had a big ad advantage for most of the summer. That really has started to slip or go to get go away entirely this month. And so you do see a tightening. And I, I would say, I mean, you know, some of the polls do have John Fetterman up big. I, I think there are a lot of even Democrats who would acknowledge privately that that race is not a done thing, uh, not a sure thing for the party by any stretch right now. Um, you know, there is a there's a sense that it's Pennsylvania, um, it's it's Nevada and it's Georgia are the three races to really watch the three races that are the closest right now. And, and, and like I said, I think everyone still thinks that Republicans have a better chance of taking the House than the Senate. Um, you know, the macro political climate has improved for Democrats, but there's a lot of confusion exactly of whether or not which party has an edge in, in the Senate races right now. Uh, I mentioned the Florida number earlier, um, Rubio plus four. We've seen some polls that have Demings down one. Uh, you cover Florida politics a lot. Are you surprised at all that Demings has kept this as close as she has, especially since we see DeSantis with a with a much bigger lead over Charlie Crist in the governor's race? I think there's a mild surprise about that in Florida. I know throughout the springtime, you know, Val Demings was, was essentially the de facto nominee for the party um, in, in Florida from the moment she declared last year. Um, you know, and a lot of Democrats would talk about her and her campaign. Um, they would, you know, it was always almost the same conversation you would have with a Democrat where they would say, boy, I sure love Val Demings, best candidate we've had in years in the state. It's a shame she doesn't have a chance to win um, in, in yeah. a hostile political climate in a state that is absolutely trending to the right. I think there's been a lot, a lot more optimism. But again, I, I do want to mention just what I just been talking about earlier. You know, Val Demings had unusual for a challenger, but she had more money at her disposal than Marco Rubio, and she spent it. Um, and she had a big ad advantage. If you actually look at the number of ads that she ran, probably through about through August, she had a three to one adv advantage over Marco Rubio. Well, of course, the race is going to tighten, um, and 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 that with that kind of dynamic present. You know, but Senator Rubio um, has a lot of cash in reserve. He's started to spend that money. Um, and, and so I think there are a lot of Democrats who think she has made more of a race of this than ever thought they ever thought possible. But there, I think there is still a lot of skepticism or doubt that she can ultimately win this race. Right. Sarah, do you expect all these races or a critical mass of these races to all break the same way? Or could we see really a, a, a split and we end up with a, with essentially a 50-50 Senate again? I think a 50-50 Senate is still possible. Um, I don't think it's going to be a, you know, a clear wave where you know, every single 
you know, contested race goes the same way. But you, know, you do get a sense that people are paying a lot of attention to yes. the Senate races in a way that you know, we don't normally see in a midterm. Um, there's some polling that suggests that you know, turnout this year could be among the highest we've ever seen in a midterm. And you know, people are really fired up in a way that we have not seen without a president at the top of the ticket. Um, it's going to make some of these races real nail biters. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, Leah, let's talk about the House a little bit. Is there a trend line that you see running through these races? Or are there races that you're watching as as bellwethers for the for the House in the, in the entire country? Yeah, uh, there are definitely a few races <laughs> that I'm watching as bellwethers. I think the general trend right now is to look at the generic ballot, which uh, last I checked, was relatively even. Uh, again, a generic ballot, the uh, poll that uh, pollsters have been using for a long time, asking if you have your choice between a generic Republican or a generic Democrat, which would you choose? Uh, throughout the cycle so far, Republicans have had a pretty significant lead that has uh, narrowed in uh, recent weeks, and last I checked was actually even. Uh, so that's generally good news for Democrats, given that in the midterms, the party in power generally loses seats, and Democrats have a very narrow majority to begin with, very little ground to lose. Uh, but uh, if you look at the individual districts uh, and the results of redistricting, uh, there is a bit of a built-in Republican advantage in the House map, um, and that's going to be difficult for Democrats to overcome. I can imagine a world in which Republicans have a very narrow House majority that uh, causes some headaches for whoever the next speaker is. Uh, but uh, I think at this point, Democrats are in a better position to keep the House than they ever have been this cycle. Uh, but it would be almost irresponsible <laughs> to say that Republicans don't have the advantage just because of Biden's approval ratings, um, the retirements we've seen in the House on the Democratic side. Some of those were key members who could have potentially held seats that very few other candidates could have. And just looking at historical trends, it's going to be a tough one. I do want to say back on the the Senate side, uh, if back to the kind of the turnout question, if we're looking at a, a really high turnout election um, where Democrats turn out almost as much as Republicans do, and why I'm saying almost is because it's those first midterms. And so you expect the party in power uh, to have uh, less enthusiasm and therefore potentially lower turnout. But if we're using 2020 as a baseline, a lot of these states, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, were basically, well, Arizona, Georgia specifically, were basically even in the 2020 race, Biden narrowly carried them. So I think that's kind of the baseline to look at when we're looking at the Senate race. And then, you know, take a few points, maybe three. Um, actually, a study I recently uh, read uh, calculated the uh, power of candidate quality and said usually it makes about a, a three-point difference in federal races. So it's kind of, you know, look at the 2020 result and then uh, plus or minus about three points for the candidate, and you have a very tight Senate race with a very um, kind of strong possibility of a 50-50 Senate. Well, you almost stole my thunder when you talked about 
the difficult job of the speaker in the next Congress, whoever it is. <laughs> so I'm going to, this is going to be the last question I ask, and I am going to ask it roundtable style because I want everybody to weigh in on this. Um, certain elements of the Freedom Caucus are already signaling that they're going to make life difficult for Kevin McCarthy. They're demanding a rules package that's advantageous to Republicans be passed before they vote for speaker. Question to all three of you Is it a guarantee that McCarthy has the speakership in the bag? Alex, do you want to start? <laughs> I'm already getting flashbacks to the uh, John Boehner years. <laughs> yes, but, you should. Uh, that's, um, that's the point. With, with that question. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess the, the, the simple answer is nothing is guaranteed in pop, pop, you know, nothing is guaranteed in politics. Generally speaking, nothing is absolutely nothing is guaranteed with the House Republican Conference um, and, and their politics. I think the question, and this has been the case you know, going back to the, the John Boehner years with Republicans, if it's not Kevin McCarthy, then then who is it? Yes. Um, who's it going to be? Um, you know, there hasn't been, you know, an, al- an alternate who has really emerged um, as, as someone people could, could vote for other than, than Kevin McCarthy. Um, you know, I think generally speaking, um, he's done a, a pretty good job um, keeping a low profile this election relative to what you've seen on the Senate side with some of the dust ups between Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott, uh, for, for instance, um, you know, so, uh, ne- never say never. It looks from the outside that he is still a pretty heavy favorite should Republicans indeed capture the house majority. Sarah, speaker McCarthy, yay or nay. It's a pretty strong possibility. I mean, the, the freedom caucus and far right candidates are going to make up a, a greater proportion of the house. If uh, Republicans take control and you know, the McCarthy of 2022 is not the McCarthy who, you know, wasn't able to run for speaker, who was kind of railroaded by the Freedom Caucus. He's 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 made new friends <laughs> and uh, he he's a bit of a different politician now than he was then. Um, you know, the real question is going to be how he can negotiate a uh you know, wins for a majority if he becomes speaker. I think that's going to be the real test of his leadership ability. Yeah. Leah, Speaker McCarthy? Well, I have thoughts. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think the first question is how much daylight is there really between Kevin McCarthy and the Freedom Caucus at this point? Because I can see a world in which they facilitate each other's, one another's rise. Uh, Maggie Severns actually wrote about this very dynamic uh, last week at GRID, uh, looking at how Trump uh, kind of was a result of the Freedom Caucus, and the Freedom Caucus was also a result of Trump. Um, And uh, all along the way, uh, Kevin McCarthy was facilitating it. So, uh, so far, he's done a really good job of appeasing them, um, you know, appeasing even the most... Uh, polarizing figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, so I would imagine that his uh, appro- his approach so far indicates that he will work with them um, to make sure that they're happy enough to uh, help him become speaker. Uh, that said, that doesn't mean he's going to be speaker. Who knows? A lot can happen between now and uh, and in the next few months. Thank you all. Great conversation today with Sarah Weyer, Leah Scardum, and Alex Rorty. Now it's Bill's favorite time of the show, your favorite story of the week, something that made you go, whoa, or just want to share. Sarah, do you want to start with your favorite story of the week? 
Yeah, my st- favorite story of the week is a New York Times piece about the return of the American chestnut tree um, and how uh, American chestnuts, which were wiped out in a blight in the 1800s, are being uh, planted at old coal mines across Appalachia. And uh, that they're desperately, foresters are desperately trying to reintroduce a hybrid version that might help, help to revive this land and you know, bring back a tree that was foundational to, to settling this country in the first place, but has completely disappeared. Nice. Leah, favorite story of the week? Yeah. Um, in keeping with the tradition, I'm going to talk about a pet article. Uh, yes. This one <laughs> uh, was a, an article from Grid uh, that looked at how uh, blood donations are happening in uh the dog community. Uh, So pet medicine is looking a lot more like human medicine down to the need for doggy blood donors. Um, And trying to get those donations is a bit of a fraught process. It's a highly entertaining and informative read. Alex? I just have to call attention to uh, the New York Times Magazine profile recently of Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. It is the second profile um, and just a, over the summer of the Florida governor. And I just have to, to note um, in covering politics for, for the Herald and Florida politics, you know, what a, um, a force of nature he already is and what a national profile he already has, um, one that is only growing, one that is um, only grown recently uh, with the, the flight that he commissioned to, to Martha's Vineyard. Um, you know, that has been uh, legitimately a, a source of huge controversy, um, but it really is hard to to think of a politician other than, than Donald Trump. Um, he commands this kind of attention within within the GOP. Um, and I think there's an expectation that the moment uh, November 8th arrives, the day after um, DeSantis 2024 is going to be um, pedal to the metal. As for mine, uh, on the one hand, I've really been enjoying Welcome to Wrexham, which is the documentary about Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney buying a Welsh soccer team. Uh, A lot of the documentary deals with uh, the two of them kind of immersing themselves not only in in Welsh culture, but the the local soccer culture and kind of respecting it and, and, and paying homage to it. Then on the other side of the ledger, we have Todd Bowley, the American entrepreneur who just bought Chelsea, the storied uh, Premier League club out of London. He was barely in the office for a couple months when he proposed the idea of a Premier League all-star game, uh, which, to say the least, does not respect the traditions of British soccer. Uh, The headline from The Mirror Todd Bowley's all-star game is utter tripe. It's hugely cocky to try to change our game, which, uh, as a nod to Ted Lasso, the only thing missing was calling him a wanker. We will leave it there for this week. That's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to Sarah Wire, Justice Department and National Security Reporter at the LA Times, Leah Escarnum, Senior Editor at Grid News, and Alex Rorty, White House correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. I'm Jeff Dufour from National Journal, sitting in for Bill, who's on vacation. 
but he left us with a podcast for next Tuesday with Mother Jones Washington Bureau Chief David Korn on his new book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. Until then, thanks for listening to the Bill Press Pod. 